Hi everyone, I'm David Green. Welcome to episode three of the 10th series of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. As the latest research we've conducted at Insight 222 finds, people analytics functions continue to grow with over 50% of leaders we surveyed saying that their team has grown since the start of the pandemic. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Daniel West and his 20 years of experience in HR leadership roles at data-driven companies like Uber and Apple have taught him how analytics can drive business performance, improve customer outcomes, and enrich employee experience and culture. Daniel is now the founder and CEO at Panelit, and the technology his firm provides is helping organizations bring together and democratize their people and business data and enrich it further with external and social capital data to drive decision-making. In our conversation, Daniel and I take a deep dive into organizational network analysis and how social capital data can be linked to performance, engagement, sales, and innovation. We discuss the level of analytical skills required by HR professionals and what we can learn from our counterparts in marketing. We look at the impact of democratizing data across business stakeholders and how this drives more agile decision-making and improved business outcomes. We also look at the critical role of ethics and trust in people analytics. And Daniel provides a great example of how a Japanese company had to virtually onboard over 200 new starters due to the pandemic and use people analytics to help that effort. And finally, we look at what HR can do to prepare their organization for an increase in remote and hybrid working. This episode is a must listen for anyone interested or involved in people analytics, employee experience and social capital. So that's business leaders, CHROs, and anyone in a people analytics or HR business partner role. Before we get started, a brief word from our sponsor for series 10 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Panelit bridges the people data gap, enabling real-time uniform access to relevant people data, reports, and insights for CXOs, HR, and business managers. People data, including employee interactions and connections, is combined with business data catalyzing new insights and intelligence. Predictive analytics moves the business from reactive to proactive, identifying correlations and points of intervention. The people-enhanced data movement empowers businesses to leapfrog to data-driven decision-making, eliminating bias and improving engagement, sales effectiveness, productivity, and as a result, business performance. Headquartered in Singapore, the company has a global footprint of clients, as well as a diverse team and cultural perspective. You can find out more by visiting panalit.com. That's P-A-N-A-L-Y-T.com. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Daniel West, founder and CEO at Panalit to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Daniel, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on board. Um, can you provide listeners with a brief introduction to your background and your role in setting up Panelit? Yeah, thanks very much, David. My name is Daniel West. I'm the founder and CEO of Panelit. I've been in in-house HR for over 20 years. So early in my career, I was uh, at Morgan Stanley. I was the head of HR and systems data processes for APAC based in Tokyo. I then joined Apple as the head of HR for Australia and Japan through the kind of high growth um, iPod, iPhone, boom, um, and then moved with Apple to the US where I ran uh, US sales, HR, and the global online store expansion. Uh, 
Um, I then came back to Asia as the head of HR for a global commodities firm, a company of about 17,000 people based out of Hong Kong. I did that for about four years and then joined Uber as the head of HR international. Basically, we had about 300 people between uh, APAC and Europe. But we grew that to about 4,500 people in about 18 months, which no one should ever do again. Um, <laughs> it was a tremendous learning experience. Um, and then like a, a lot of ex-Uber executives, I ended up working for a couple of VCs. Uh, I, I supported um, super high growth companies that were getting to their Series A or Series B um, that were looking at, at huge you know, in expansion in their in their headcount. And I basically helped them to set up their HR for scale, uh, buy in their HR technologies. And uh, I did that for about two years before essentially founding my own startup panel. We did that about three years ago. You've seen it on both sides of the fence. And we'll talk about how your experience plays into what you're doing now, really. You know, you've been in HR in all different companies at different stages, which I think is really interesting. And now, you know, you started Panelit, I think, back in 2017. And you're focused on what you call practical people analytics. I'd love you to do, be able to describe that for our listeners and um, what this means and why it's important. It really does come out of um, that kind of hands-on experience as a practical HR practitioner at very data-driven companies. So you have finan uh, fantastic access to your financial data, your sales data, customer data. And at Uber, we had uh, systems sitting on the uh, desktops of managers where they could in real time see the driver and rider behaviors. They knew when to uh, put in a discount and when to uh, put in driver incentives. And this is an incredibly complex data set uh, sitting behind the tool. But because the people involved in designing the tool understood the source of that data and understood the, the challenge that's that, that they're trying to achieve through the data, they were able to simplify the interface so that managers could grasp that data and take action on it, um, again, in, in real time. So um, where that kind of falls down with people data is... Typically, HR people, just like myself, they were not particularly technical. I've got no better understanding of, of, uh, of analytics than, than you know, my colleagues. HR people that are um, not, not particularly technical, um, not particularly uh, data-oriented, um, but then you have the, the BI folks who don't understand the source of the people data um, and don't necessarily understand the challenges that you're focused on. I mean, there are some great BI professionals out there, but they tend to be very trained in in um, understanding the, the front end of the business and solving those challenges, and then just tend to not be that interested in the people data. So you end up with analytics that are either that's either too simple to take action on because it's HR trying to drive it themselves off insufficient data, insufficient skills to do that kind of analytics. Analytics, or it's overcomplicated because you've got the BI teams that, are, that can source every piece of data and throw it all in and come up with a fantastically uh, brilliant uh, visualization that doesn't actually solve the challenge you're looking for. So with practical people analytics, it's trying to find, a, find that balance. And that's why yeah. I, I think at, at, at Panelit, what we're doing by having our, our own data science team, building the tools ourselves, we build the dashboards ourselves. And with myself and a couple of colleagues like me with, with the HR background, we're trying to make sure that we understand the source data. We understand the challenge that's trying to get solved. We understand there is tremendous complexity in the data, but we're building interfaces that is simplifying that and making it um, accessible and real to managers. And the other thing about, I think, practical people analytics is it needs to be repeatable. So there's nothing more frustrating than applying a whole bunch of BI resources and getting a data scientist on board, doing a one-time piece of analysis, and then realizing that, okay, hey, we now learned something tremendous about attrition or engagement or performance. But then if we want to take action and then measure it again, 
we're going to have to apply all these same resources again. If it's not repeatable, you can't get into that virtuous cycle of seeing the data, taking action, seeing the data again, and seeing that, that you're doing the right thing. So if it's not repeatable, then it's not, it's not practical. So the, the principle's the same as, as you said, you know, you gave the example, obviously, the time at Uber, and you've got that sales and customer data at, your, at the fingertips of the manager so they can make real-time decisions. You're really looking at the same thing applying for, for people data, you know, so that they can make decisions about their teams and, and, and everything else in, almost in real time. But it's simplified in a way for them that, that they don't need to be experts in, in, in analytics. And I think when you look at the, um, you know, the historical change in marketing, so how marketing has gone from being not particularly data driven at all, where now half the headcount of any growth marketing team is, is you know, data engineers and, and data scientists, they, they went through that evolution because it wasn't just that now we have a lot more data. Now we really need to understand how to use it and how to make it actionable. So it wasn't the marketing team trying to leverage some data scientist time, it was marketers becoming data scientists or data scientists getting involved in marketing directly. Um, whereas HR, I think, is still very much in the position of having to beg, borrow, steal data scientist time to get anything done on a one-off project. And that doesn't lead to scalable practical results. And it's interesting about scale. I mean, obviously, one of the areas of scale, as you said, is, is, is making it repeatable. I think another area of scale that we hear a lot from from organizations that, that, that we work with and, and others around the world is we need to increase the capability um, across the board of our HR professionals around using data. You know, they need to be more confident of it. They need to be more capable. They need to be able to ask the right questions. You know, in your opinion, given that you've been an HR professional for, for most of your career, what level of analytical skill does the HR practitioner themselves need? I think there's got to be a clear line between the folks that are already in HR, like myself, who's had 10, 20 years doing it, and, and folks maybe just coming into it now. I think there's definitely a, um, there definitely should be a push, and there should, definitely should be a good career path designed for grabbing, you know, budding data engineers and pulling them into HR and showing them why it's interesting and relevant to do. I think for folks that are already in their HR career, I think it's it's madness to think that we're just going to reinvent ourselves. But what I, I really do think that any what any HR person can do in terms of making themselves more relevant uh, or making their organizations more relevant to that 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 people dis uh, discussion that so people data discussion and and making what they do um, more relevant to creating actionable people analytics um, is is understanding how the activities uh, that you're designing so you're designing a, a new onboarding process you're designing a, a new engagement survey the decisions you're making um, are either going to make that data more useful or less useful. And I, and I really worry about the number of HR professionals that are still doing engagement surveys once a year. And I, and I meet a lot of them. And I, and I think there is something fundamentally missing in, in how, how you're understanding how that data is going to be usable. Because they're the same folks that are doing onboarding surveys at one point in the year not when people have finished onboarding, just everyone who onboarded that year, we're going to survey them at this point. The data is so far removed from yeah. when the activity was happening, it is essentially useless. And so I think HR gets criticized for running surveys that, is, that aren't very useful. And I think that criticism isn't often that valid. But in this case, it is valid because that survey is fundamentally useless because, it, because it's so far removed from the source of the activity. So with a very small change in the design of your process, you can create data that will be actionable, even if it's actionable 
you know, a year later when you finally get some data science time. But, but it'll be sitting there and it will be usable because you did it at the right time. Let's say you asked the right questions about the right activity and that's all got stored somewhere. And then that will be massively useful. But if you're not doing it in, a, in, a, in an intelligent way, then it, it's, it's not going to be practically useful. Um, that uh, comes up a lot when we go to clients and we, under, uh, we explain the difference between um, uh, terminations and resignations not being that actionable, but regret and non-regret attrition being tremendously actionable. But now it's you know, so much of their attrition's in the history and they don't remember if it was regretted or not. I think, as you said, it's, it's, it's partly about HR professionals probably understanding the importance of data without actually becoming data experts themselves, but understanding the importance of it. And why it needs to be collected, and when it needs to be collected, and how, and everything else. And I gave you gave sorry, you go. And recognizing yeah. that, yeah, that is going to in, 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 you know require some process change, but probably not that much, much of a process change, considering the impact of you know the positive impact of what you're doing. I know we're going to talk a little bit around sort of ethics and stuff like that late, later, and obviously making sure there's a benefit to the employee of collecting your data in the first place. But I guess you you you, you drew that really great analogy with with marketing you know ultimately a lot of the data that the marketing teams kept collect is about customers customer preferences customer loyalty voice of the customer etc etc to help shape products and services and i guess it's the same with with hr the more you take the voice of the employee the more you understand their frustrations the things they like the things they don't like their ideas let's be honest especially if they're dealing directly with customers that you can use to actually help improve the business so i think there's there's definitely that and i think the other the other thing that maybe it's worth talking about from an hr practitioner i think as a function we've too often looked internally and not often enough looks externally about what are the key challenges facing the business you know with the business strategy where the business is going and it's that ability of the hr professional to have those conversations with key stakeholders in the business and then identify you know, what is some of the people analytics that we could do to help drive those business outcomes? I think this is something that obviously uh, HR is criticized for, but for not being on the front line, for not supporting the, the business directly. Um, I, I think the uh, I think it goes back to that question I was saying before about you, you've got to understand the business challenge in order to design the analytics yeah. that's going to support that business challenge. So, we, you know, we often talk to, to clients that always have attrition as a challenge. So, so attrition is a challenge. We're losing, uh, we're losing internal knowledge. We're losing sales contacts. How do we address that? And so we've built a number of tools that, that help you to understand the, for example, the relationships between salespeople and their clients so that then if you do lose salespeople, you're able to then sort of pick up those relationships using the network communication data that we can pull in and align with, with people data. Or, or, or take a step back to identifying what the drivers of attrition are so we can do predictive analytics on that attrition and then targeting that to who are the people that are critical to the business and that's where we should focus our energy. We then also have encountered a number of clients, particularly because we do a lot of work in Japan, where attrition is just not a problem. They are just not losing people at all. The problem, the, the challenge that the, the company has is that they, the, the people don't leave the organization. They don't have a, a performance culture um, that, that at least pushes people out. And so what, what their real challenge is kind of effectiveness or productivity and engagement links directly to that. So then how can we start to adapt all those tools that we have been using to identify attrition risk and leverage that to, to identify engagement risk? And also, how does engagement link to productivity? Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, all the best HR people that I've met, whether they're CHROs, heads of people analytics, heads of learning, whatever, are also good business people. And I think we sometimes we need to remember that 
you know, we're HR people, we're business people as well. I think that's important. What is the impact that you've seen of, of democratizing the data across stakeholders and speeding that process from insight to, to, to outcome, I guess? We talk a lot about data democratization. It's one of the fundamental things that I want a panel to achieve is I, I fundamentally feel that the, the breakdown between or one of the sources of breakdown between HR and the business is that they're you're kind of talking a different language because at least in the terms of data and the understanding the how the people data is is um, illustrating certain behaviors or, or, or hinting at certain activities in the people. Managers who are very familiar with certain financial metrics, even if they're not in finance, they understand key financial metrics because it's put in front of them every week, every month. It is made to be important to them. Whether whether they started their career thinking, oh yeah, I really need to understand a PL, but they will understand a PL uh, by the end of running their, their business for a couple of years. But because people data isn't in front of line managers in in the same kind of automatic way. It's not, again, made useful and relevant to them and structured into their day-to-day understanding of their business, that then when you go to a manager with an attrition number, with a gender um, pay gap um, analysis, that, that they don't understand the underlying data. The underlying data isn't familiar to them. So, you know, I, I think an average HR professional can see a attrition percentage and you know instinctively, you know, based on your industry and region, but still, you know instinctively whether that's a reasonably good number or a reasonably bad number. And and the difference between first six-month attrition and you know, long-term attrition, you understand the difference in that. And again, what those numbers kind of should look like. Um, and, and if I think about the best commercial managers I've known, it was the guys, like I used to work for Tim Cook, and Tim Cook would visit the Japan business uh, at Apple, and he could look at a massive spreadsheet of our entire quarter's business, and he would pick out the one field, which is the one question we didn't want him to ask about, because he just recognized where the numbers were just slightly off, even though he couldn't yeah. say why. And no commercial manager is able to do that looking at attrition data, looking at, again, uh, pay disparity data, looking at gender imbalance data, because it just isn't familiar to them. And I think if we were more routinely putting that data out to the managers, trusting managers to, to take this data on responsibly, they become more familiar with it. Therefore, every discussion between HR, their HR partner and the manager is going to get easier because there's a familiarity. Well, that's fundamentally what I think is important about democratization of data. I think the other aspect is getting employees' own data in front of them. And I, I suppose this is really part of what GDPR is pushing companies to do is to make data transparent to the employee. But I think there are very few systems that are doing this well. But I do think if employees understand the data that's being held, they have the ability to say, that's not accurate. This is what I think it should be. Or I don't think you should hold that data. You know, tell me why you're holding that piece of data. That they, they have a sense of trust that they are seeing everything. Then I think that that level of trust between the individual and the organization, I think is going to be so much better. And then when something does go wrong, where, you know, and we've seen stuff in the press recently where data that was being held without really the company's permission by managers, then the company can stand up and say to the employees, this wasn't sanctioned. You know what the data was sanctioned because you can see it there in the systems. This wasn't a sanctioned uh, data collection and, and you know, those people are out of the business. And I think those situations where you've built up trust allows you to weather um, 
the the kind of storms when, as I say, when when illicitly kept data, you know, it emerges. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, as an employee, what use do I get from this data being collected? Is it going to help my career within this organisation? Is it going to help the way I'm treated? Um, is it going to is it going to help my performance? You know, all those types of things I think are good for employees at the end of the day, and and good for the organisation. So yeah, I think it's that balance. Interesting question. So we talked about democratising data. We talked about you know, HR having a responsibility to really understand, you know, what are the business challenges and linking that to some of the work that, that we can do with people analytics. But who is responsible for ensuring that they know, i.e. The, the stakeholders, how to use the data and the insights effectively? So if we're democratising the data, that's one thing. But how can we ensure they know how to use it? You know, I, you can't get away from the, the, the fundamental point that we are talking about people analytics. It's people tech and the people team is going to have to have show, show the leadership of saying this is the data that we're showing to you and this is why we've got it and this is how you can use it. I, I think you've got to be the subject matter expert. And I think this does go back to your earlier question about what are the skills, what are the modern skills of the, of the data-driven HR professional? I don't think it is becoming a data scientist, as I say. It, it's about... It's about knowing, understanding the principles of the data, how you're collecting it, how you're using it. It's got to be the practical application of the data. And so, yeah, I, I think the educational aspect of that does lie with the people team. So two trends that kind of pushed me towards starting Panelit. One, one was obviously seeing the massive explosion in SaaS computing, cloud computing, the, the specialist SaaS tools that do a lot of very, very specific things in the employee uh, lifecycle really well producing huge amounts of data that HR was completely incapable of using. And so that always frustrated me. And I always felt like, okay, okay we, we've got to solve that problem. We've got to collect that data together and make it actionable. The other trend, which I still think is, is continuing, is HR as a percentage of total headcount just keeps on getting smaller. I think HR headcount is always under pressure. There's clearly a perception that you've now got all this technology, you surely don't need so many people. And in a way, I, I sympathize with that. I mean, the technology should be making us more efficient. But as I said, each of these pieces of technology is allowing us to understand an aspect of the employee's experience and the, and the different levers you can pull. And I think we're pulling resources away from HR just when we've got so many more levers to pull where we can positively influence the organization. I think what you're referring to about the educational aspect is part of it. We've got, we've got an opportunity to democratize the data, put more data in front of line managers, but we don't necessarily have the resources to apply to do that training and be the kind of real hands-on business partner that you want to be to educate all your line managers to use this data effectively. You know, years ago, in, in, you know, back in the days of things like, you know, PeopleSoft, where you're putting in the, you know, the pre-online, pre-SAS uh, HRSs, but the selling point of put PeopleSoft in and you can get rid of half of your sort of HR admin team. But unfortunately, what that always skipped was the reality that you then needed to hire almost as many people to manage PeopleSoft, to actually manage the data into it and get the data out of it and make sure that you were utilizing the system. And you were supposed to be getting more out of this investment, not just getting rid of people and staying flat because technology doesn't work that way. So I think, unfortunately, we're buying in systems, but not supporting that with the resources of people. It's kind of the evolution of HR, isn't it? It's Yes, we, we're taking out quite a lot of the transactional stuff, which is good, the kind of more admin related stuff. But actually, as you said, it's, adult, it's now with, with these additional levers we've got, we can create more value. So it's not just about shedding numbers from HR, it's actually changing the mix of the HR population and, and being more focused around driving business outcomes and 
personalizing the employee experience and making it better. Because if we do that, that adds value to the business and it's the right thing to do. And it's what employees expect because employees are consumers at the end of the day. And the technology they use as consumers is all personalized for them and is relevant. Whereas the you know technology we've historically used in HR is one size fits all. So there's a huge opportunity, I think, for HR, which we're seeing in people analytics is, is kind of at the forefront of that and underpinning a lot of that in, in, in many respects. I, I do worry about the number of investors that we've pitched to over the years that have leaned in and said, oh, that's really interesting. So basically, you can get rid of HR. By using this tool, you'd like companies will just well, they won't need HR people anymore. And I'm thinking, what am I doing wrong in my pitch that's giving you that impression? <laughs> I'm starting to feel genuinely guilty now. But it does mean that there's a number of investors that think that that's the right goal for organizations, or they're hearing from businesses that that yeah. is their goal. Is that how do we just get rid of the HR function completely? And I, I and that's obviously not our goal. Our, our goal is to empower a better relationship between managers and HR and to let HR sort of move on to the, the value add part rather than the, the crunching of data part. But yeah, it, it's, it's a worry that, that that concept is out there. Yeah, it's, it's create more value rather than saving money. I mean, it does save money as well, but it's, it's the creation of value, I think, which is important. I know from conversations we've had previously, Daniel, we're both pretty passionate about our relational analytics, ONA, social capital, whatever we want to call it. There's all different names for it. So we're going to dive a little bit deeper on that. And I know it's a topic that our listeners are, are very interested in as well. But can you give some examples either from Panelit or from your career previous to that of where, and um, we'll call it ONA because it's the shortest word, has been used most effectively and why that was? It's a fascinating data set to get your hands around and, and to get into a, a, a format where it's kind of usable and you can start playing. And, and we've spent a, a huge amount of effort making sure that our our interface sort of satisfies our goal of making it usable by line managers. You don't need to understand the underlying principles in order to start start playing with it. Um, and and the the kind of really early use cases have come out of this whole working from home um, experience that we've been going through this this year. We've got a, a large Japanese company that they onboard two to three hundred new grads every year. This is their first year where those two to three new grads are not coming into a ballroom and having in-person lectures by the CEO and then spending the next you know six months in little teams moving around the organization, learning everything in a really hands-on way with daily check-ins by their manager. Japanese companies are an absolute machine in how they do new hire onboarding and it and it creates such a deep loyalty that'll last for the rest of those people's careers. And that's gone. That's like that does doesn't exist. So there's been a tremendous angst around how are we going to onboard these. There was even a consideration of just saying, don't even bother, start next year. Like just just write yeah. off this first year of employment. Just go home. And obviously because the HR group was already using our people analytics and then we were putting together this relational ONA data together with the people data. They saw the opportunity where they could, on a real-time basis, see how those new grads were forming relationships within the organization, comparing that against, you spin back in time to last year's new grads, look at their relationships that they built in their first six months, try to map that against how this new set of new grads, how they're forming relationships. So we're tracking the metadata out of email, chat, and calendar. So we're seeing the metadata, not the content, but the, but the metadata yeah. gives us who they're connecting with. And because that's all aligned with the people data, we can see, are they making relationships at different grade levels? They're not just all making buddies with each other, but they're making relationships that are cross department and even cross location. So once the team saw the potential of this, they're actually trying to now make this a positive rather than a 
than a, than a stopgap measure. It's like, okay, well, now we can just do global onboarding. So now, you know, spend this time, do these projects with these international teams because now we can actually track whether that's actually working on. So they, they're able to drill down to the individual to see, is this person advanced enough along? Are they making the connections that's expected? And then do a direct intervention to coach them to make those relationships richer. And so that's been a really positive use case during this work from home crisis that, that I think, you know, we've, we've instantly positively impacted those kind of 300 new grads lives in, in a way that we feel really good about. So something from Uber, we're kind of looking at it the other way around. The analysis we did at Uber that really got me into understanding the, the potential of the ONA data from the very beginning was us looking at the last hundred or so exits that we had in head office technology group. And we were looking at those 100 exits, looking at the Slack data. And, and in Uber, we lived on Slack internally, with no other tools used. By looking at those hundred people activities, there was always a, an expectation that we would see some change in their communication activities prior to them leaving. And well, I was working with the data team and, and, and we sort of kept on pushing the timeline back and back and back. And you realize that it's three to four months before almost everyone left. And it didn't matter whether they were terminated or, or resigned. You saw the number of meaningful relationships that they had within the organization started to drop dramatically and it hit a floor. It never hits to zero. There were always a handful of people who are your actual friends and actually the average relationship score, the, the, the average value of those relationships went up. And so if you were looking at this data the wrong way, if you were just looking at the relationship score, you'd never see this. But if you yeah. looked at the number of people where they had a high, high number of relationships, it literally fell off a cliff. Obviously for some people it falls off and then recovers. You know, their manager has changed or their job's changed or they're just having a bad week. But where it falls off that cliff and is sustained for three to four months, 99% of those people left the organization. And then we interviewed them. And out of those 100 people, the vast majority, 80 to 90%, reported that they agreed this was happening, but they saw it happening three to four weeks before they left. So that means there's a three to four month gap in the data where the employee themselves isn't perceiving this happening, where they're not perceiving that relationship drop. But then suddenly they are aware of either being rejected or that they are rejecting the company, and then they leave or they realize that they're, that they're out. And so this becomes an incredibly powerful and very, very simple and direct way that we're now using the uh, ONA data to predict loss of engagement and uh, in the worst case attrition. And it's something that's very, very, very visible. And it, uh, intuitive, it's very, it kind of makes sense, right? You lose that connection to the company. The other thing that I also noticed was, was interesting, it doesn't make any difference whether people are exchanging cat photos or whether they're actually doing work with friends. You know, your relationships inside the organization are things that bind you into the culture. We never found any direct correlation between people talking about the nature of their relationship. Interesting. Obviously, bringing all those data sets together, and I know in Panelit, you bring together classic HR data from the variety of systems that organizations use. This relational data, obviously, from collaboration tools and, and, and passive, passive data, basically, and business data, you bring all that together. What are some of the challenges in doing that? The fundamental challenge um, that we had to address kind of in our early stage, I mean, we spent a good year and a half building our data warehouse from scratch. It's an entirely custom build with the architecture to deliver people data to our front end sort of very, very fast. And so it's a there's a real setup of how we ingest the data, how it's structured, the calculations that we're doing on a daily basis, and, and how it's delivered to the front end that is pretty unique to, to, to people data. And so we kind of got past that challenge of structuring ourselves, particularly so, so people data in general, in the scale of 
the big data world, people data isn't that big. There aren't that many transactions that happen to an employee on a day-to-day -day basis. So any data scientist that's worked with us has just said, like, this is the, the least, the predictably least keen data set that they've ever had to work with. Um, there's so much customization that happens. And I know this from being a buyer of HR systems. One of the first questions you ask is, can I customize the fields? You expect to have that. And that now being on this side of the fence, I realize what an absolute pain we built for ourselves in this because HR teams basically customize everything because we just say yes to the business when they want to, can we track it this way? Can we call it that? And particularly recruitment systems are incredibly customizable. So the HR data come is, is incredibly hard to structure. And so we kind of solved that problem. And then we started looking at the communications data, which is entirely the opposite. It is absolutely enormous, complex data sets, but very, very clean because it is obviously no one customizes their email systems, right? So I think some companies that do ONA approach the data structure differently than we do. But obviously, we're tying all of this to individual employees. So the way we're doing the ONA analysis or structuring the data as we put it in is essentially tying it to the employee record and the relationships between two employees. And so we essentially treat the relationship between two employees as another data point that has attributes yeah. hanging on it. And so we still structure it the same way that, that we do the people data. So we spend a long time solving one challenge that actually let us solve the second challenge actually not that hard. And then the knitting the data together, starting with the people data is actually quite a nice place to be because you've generally got the, it's very rare to not have the company email within the people data. It's almost always there. And then that gives you the key to every other system. Um, so the employee ID very rarely sits anywhere else except in the HR data. But if you can trust the email connector, then you can connect to any other system. And comms, CRM data is all driven off the same keys. So I think our, our only real challenge is looking at data sets that aren't necessarily structured based on the individual employee. So there are obviously uh, CRM attributes that are linked to sales teams. And then we do really have to look at, okay, what's the client expectation on how, how do they want to see this data? And then we have to structure separate data tables for those objects that are not employees. It's not that difficult. And there's always an employee related to the data in some way. You know, we had a certain starting point that gives us certain challenges, but yeah, not, nothing that's really been massively insurmountable. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously bringing in that, that email data or data from other collaboration tools, you know, there's a lot of chat around that you know both from practitioners partly because of gdpr and other legislation a lot of people analytics professionals will tell me we want to do network analytics but we have a challenge with our privacy teams with our employee representative groups you know and i say to them, well don't start with the one well, i want to do network analytics start with the business problem you're trying to solve but even so the technology has had some bad press fairly or unfairly i don't know what what's your take and how do you advise companies should approach using this type of data yeah, absolutely. I and mean, we, we do have somewhat an advantage that we're based in Asia. Most of our clients are Asia based. And so, you know, there, there's not quite as much focus on that. But also, I think we've made some good, well, I believe we've made some good fundamental decisions. One of those being that we are never touching content. We are absolutely focused on getting the most out of the metadata as possible. So we are not taking subject lines, meeting headings, headers, or the content of any communication. Uh, even in some tools, you're able to get not the text content, but you can get the emojis. And I went, no, 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 we're not taking the emojis either. We're not taking any of this. Like, like we're, not, we're not looking into what the employee is doing. We are looking into how they are relating to people and how they are building networks and who they're connected with. Um, I, I do think, so that's a good starting point. I think the other one is we absolutely 
I can't say we require, but we very strongly recommend, and every client has done it, to tell their employees what they're doing. Like, like the number of clients that have started off saying, okay, we'll do it, we'll see what we get, and then we'll tell the people. No, 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 no. Tell yeah. them right up front, this is what you're doing, and this is why it's going to be useful to them. Which I think goes back to what we we're saying about the data democratization. Having an interface that is open to the employees, and this is very on our current product roadmap to, to open up a lot more of this data and finding to an employee view. And I think that's actually necessary under GDPR, but I think just a necessary thing to build employee trust. Start with the business challenge. Start with what it is that we're going to discover. So we're going to discover this thing about how you relate to people and how that's helping you do a better job. And we're going to show you that data and you will understand it and you'll know the same as what your manager knows about you. And I think that can only be a useful thing. I think the fact that we're also starting a large part of our client uh, use cases are around sales and sales effectiveness. So the responsiveness of a client to a salesperson's communications. So how quickly the, the client replies to your email. Like most salespeople know instinctively that this is a key measure, they've got no way of actually measuring it. So we're actually showing them that. And so this is actually being shared directly with sales teams. So they can see their own performance with client A versus client B versus client C, and they can kind of make sense of it. They can get coaching from their manager. But because we're starting with that use case with a you know, salesperson's own data, there isn't any hurdle to get over. Like they, they want to see this. This is an active request from the employee base so if you can find scenarios like that where it is really employees want to see this information then yeah i agree with you you're not going to get that kind of pushback so you've got to start from that point of view of how is this valuable to us and to, to, to the employee and again total transparency completely agree and 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 i think this leads nicely onto the question we're asking everyone on the show in this series and i think there's a there's a real link i think with some of the what we just talked about with with network analytics you know what can HR leaders do to help their organizations for the future, as uncertain as it is, where there will likely be an increase in remote and hybrid working? We've had tremendous interest through this kind of working from home period because it's, because it's, it's made looking for any other way to kind of touch base with our employees and, and also doing it very, very quickly. That's been important to companies. They feel that you can't wait to let's design a new survey and set up a new survey tool and get all that in place. And, you know, in, in four weeks time, we can roll that out where obviously you can put Analyt in place to do this basic level of analytics. We can get going in one to two weeks and then you're seeing the data in real time. I do think the most important thing I think that the companies can do from this perspective is to get that data into the hands of managers and make sure they do understand how to use it. And that, that you're getting that real time feedback from managers is, if I could just see it like this, if I could just see it like that, this would be more useful to me, less useful. I, I think empowering managers with more information about their employees, particularly what's come up on a very practical basis is time shifting. So the, 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 the aspect of where we had a lot of uh, companies feeling their managers were feeling, and it's definitely a feeling, that, that their employees were not working as hard, were not as available online, weren't coming to meetings as much, or were kind of arriving late, leaving early to, to online meetings. And by looking at the uh, ONA data, you were able to see that the actual total amount of activity, digital activity, was completely the same. Just people were shifting that from kind of the, you know, 9 a.m. To, to, to 4, 5 p.m. period, like uh, activity was really reducing. Because a lot of people are looking after their kids, or, or you know, or, or you know, other dependents. Um, 
and then getting back to work sort of after five, six o'clock. And so the, there was a real time shift that on a practical basis, once managers understood this about their teams, they could start to shift when one-on-ones were happening, start to shift their stand-ups, their, their team meetings, and when they expected to hear back from their people. And, it, and for good managers, it just kind of reset their expectations and the manager yeah. adjusted and carried on you know, supporting their team. So I think having that kind of really simple practical data in front of managers, I think is really valuable. The other thing we're hearing is yes, it, companies trying to run a lot more pulse surveys. And I suppose this isn't you know, anything to do with panel it, but 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 you know, I've run so many of these things in the past. I I, I end up consulting with most of our clients around how to set up a pulse survey. Well, and we I think I think Uber was one of the you know best companies I've ever seen at running a really frequent, really um, actionable pulse survey. But then I think what the power of it is going to be that having the pulse survey results in real time, or you know, getting the survey result and getting it you know analyzed you know, instantly and running that beside the ONA data because we can measure engagement or, you know, activity and network behavior as a proxy of engagement together with the survey. And what I think is incredibly interesting is when the survey says that someone or a team is super engaged, but the ONA data is showing that they are not connecting, they are not talking as much as they used to. So is the survey wrong? Is the uh, ONA data giving you a, a misleading answer? It's actually that the two things are measuring two different points. And the fact that they are disagreeing is telling you something really, really interesting. It depends on what the questions yeah. are in the survey. But I think there's something that you learned from having both the subjective and the objective data together. Daniel, I think we could probably talk all day about this, but we're not allowed to because otherwise it'd be the longest episode of the podcast ever. So I'm going to say thank you very much for being a guest on the show. Can you let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you uh, follow you on social media and find out more about Panelit. I'm DJW at Panelit.com. The advantage of having an odd name, Panelit, is that we're very easy to find on Google and social media. So you'll find us on Medium, and same on Facebook, on LinkedIn. Please reach out to me directly on LinkedIn or directly through my email. As you can tell, I'm always happy to talk about this topic with anyone who's interested. And David, yeah, I really appreciate everything you're doing to make people analytics better understood, more professional and more enjoyable place to work in. And my whole team, all super admire the work you're doing and, and they were super excited about me being on here we really appreciate everything you're doing so thank you and thanks for this opportunity well that that's very kind of you to say that daniel and thank you very much thank you really appreciate the time david thank you thanks for listening to this episode of the digital hr leaders podcast i hope you enjoyed it you can subscribe by your podcast app of choice if you did enjoy listening please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. If you haven't already, do check out the MyHR Future Academy at myhrfuture.com. It's a learning experience platform for HR professionals looking to get certified in people analytics, digital HR, and workforce planning. You can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter by going to the MyHR Future website. That's all for this episode, but please make sure you tune in next week. We'll be speaking to Michael Arena, about his widely acclaimed research in the area of social capital, network analytics and adaptive organisations. So don't miss that one. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and I'll see you next time.